I want to welcome you all today. I am Peter Russo. I'm the Director of Congressional Affairs at the Cato Institute. And I want to thank you all for coming today. Um, this is a Capitol Hill briefing entitled The Home Stretch for Major Tax Reform. And of course, we crossed a big hurdle today in the House as they agreed to the Senate budget proposal, which of course paves the way for um, a reconciliation-derived tax, tax reform package. Um, this spring, the Cato Institute released the eighth edition of the Cato Handbook for Policymakers. Copies were available on the table as you came in. And our recommendations for tax reform begin on page 45 of that publication. And further, there are four other chapters that deal exclusively with fiscal policy. Uh, if you'd like more copies, please contact me after the program. Meanwhile, fully searchable PDFs of the entire 80-chapter volume are available at Cato.org. Um, with that, I'd like to introduce Ryan Bourne, who occupies the R. Evan Scharf Chair for the Public Understanding of Economics at Cato. He has written on a number of economic issues, including fiscal policy, inequality, minimum wages, and rent control. Uh, before joining Cato, Bourne was head of public policy at the Institute of Economic Affairs and head of economic research at the Center for Policy Studies, both of which are in the UK. Uh, Bourne has extensive broadcast and print media experience and has appeared on BBC News, CNN, and Sky News. And he also writes a weekly columns for both the Daily Telegraph and the London paper City AM. Uh, he holds a PA and a Master of Philosophy in Economics from the University of Cambridge, United Kingdom. And we will leave time at the end for Q&A, and I'll have a short announcement before we leave. But for now, let's please welcome Ryan Bourne. Well, good afternoon, and thank you so much for all being here today. I think the, the size of the audience is both testament to the importance of the topic and also to the quality of our uh, speakers on the panel, so welcome. Uh, the title today asks us whether this is the home stretch for major tax reform, and it really does feel as if momentum has been building in recent weeks, particularly with the Senate budget agreement obviously now passing the House today too. Major tax reform has been something talked about for decades, and I think the ambition of the plans and the frameworks being laid out are exciting, not just for those of us who, who spend our lives analysing these things, but also, I suspect, for ordinary voters, workers and businesses who have waited for this kind of agenda. Nevertheless, it's fair to say a multitude of questions remain. The factual ones will get hammered out in the coming weeks. How far will the corporate tax rate be cut? What will the top marginal income tax rate be? What will happen to base broadening measures like with the state and local uh, income tax deduction? But there are also the contestable ones related to analysis of the plans. What will be the impact on economic growth? What will be any static or dynamic revenue losses? And how far will corporate rate cuts feed through into higher wages? With all these debates still rumbling, you wonder whether, to quote Winston Churchill, we are at the beginning of the end or merely the end of the beginning. To navigate some of these questions, we have a real expert panel today. Before I introduce them, though, it's worth noting one bad argument uh, that opponents of the tax plan have been propagating, and that's to distinguish between tax cuts on the one hand and tax reform as this some kind of purer revenue-neutral concept on the other. Economists would say that, that cuts to taxes that make codes more economically neutral actually constitute reform in and of themselves. So, of course, can eliminating deductions, which would raise taxes on net. But it's fair to say when you look around the world at successful tax reform, without net tax cuts, reform becomes that bit more difficult. And that's because if you have no net tax cuts, uh, too many people are identified as losers, making it politically very difficult to get changes through. A line that really stuck with me 
when we were discussing, uh, discussing these issues uh, in the UK a few years ago that sums up this sentiment is that tax reform without tax cuts is politically suicidal, but tax cuts without reform is a huge missed opportunity. So we have three great speakers today um, to discuss all these issues, and they'll speak in the order in which I introduce them uh, now. First, Grover Norquist is the founder and president of Americans for Tax Reform. Grover has been at the forefront of the tax cut movement for decades and is the chief promoter of the Taxpayer Protection Pledge, signed by lawmakers to oppose increases in marginal income tax rates uh, for individuals and businesses, as well as net reductions or eliminations of deductions and credits without matching uh, reduced tax rates. He was one of the co-authors of the 1994 Contract with America and has been described as the high priest of Republican tax cutting by the New York Times. Uh, second, Alex Brill is a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, Alex is the author of uh, numerous studies, including a pro-growth proposal to reduce the corporate tax rate to 25%, and is also the author of The Real Tax Burden, More Than Dollars and Cents. Before joining AEI, Alex served as the Policy Director and Chief Economist of the House Ways and Meads Committee. Uh, he's been on the staff of the White House Council of Economic Advisers and also on the staff of the Simpson-Bowles Commission. Finally, Cato's own Chris Edwards is the Director of Tax Policy at Cato and editor of uh, downsizinggovernment.org. Before joining Cato, Chris was a senior economist on the Congressional Joint Economic Committee and an economist with the Tax Foundation. He's the author of Downsizing the Federal Government and co-author of Global Tax Revolution. So each speaker will speak for about 10 minutes in the order that I've introduced them then we'll leave plenty of time for questions from the floor at the end. So, Grover, over to you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, step one, uh, tax reform, tax cut, the answer is yes. I think you quite correctly said it's both. Uh, the people who try and suggest there are two things there miss the point. Um, where are we trying to get to? Uh, I would argue that the tax reform is, as outlined right now, is significant progress and two, going to pass. Uh, step one, where are we trying to get to? How do we know it's significant progress? Where are we trying to get to? I would argue that we want to get to taxing income one time at one rate. The reason you want to move towards taxing income at one rate is not a question of fairness. Taxation is taking money from people who earned it and giving it to people who didn't necessarily earn it. Fairness is not part of that equation. Uh, you can do it in more or less destructive ways, but fairness is not the issue. The reason you want to have a sing move towards a single rate tax uh, is because then the politicians have to look everybody in the eye when they want to raise taxes and say, I've got a really good idea, and you're all paying for it. Uh, prior to emigrating to the United States, I grew up in Massachusetts, and there we have, by constitution, a single rate tax. They have an income tax, has to be single rate. Five times they put on the ballot, let's go to a graduated income tax. Five times, Blue Massachusetts, George McGovern, Ted Kennedy, Massachusetts, has voted that down on the basis that, yeah, year one, you'll... Uh, raise taxes on the Kennedy kids, but year two, three, and four, you'll come for the rest of us, and the Kennedy kids won't care what happens to us anymore. Uh, and 
if you don't have a single rate tax, you have what we've had for years, which is the Richard Speck theory of tax increases, which is if you can't take on everyone in the room, you take them out of the room one at a time, just the 1%, just the smokers, just the, the pick people in groups and then take them out and mug them uh, outside. Taxing income one time, we have the problem now that we tax it when you earn it, when you save it, when you invest it, if you put it in a company, if you get a capital gains, you're stupid enough to die, they want to take almost half. So they keep coming back for the same bite at the apple. Uh, part of what we're doing here is, is taking rates down, which gets you towards a single tax, uh, single rate tax, and by not having a death tax and uh, making some more savings tax-free, we move towards taxing income one time. Is this the end of the game? Is this, we pass this and then we win? One of the things that I found most disappointing about the conversations we've had on this so far is this conversation that this is a once-in-a-lifetime historic event. What does that mean? Well, we haven't done fundamental tax reform uh, since 1986, uh, and so that's been 30 years. It's, it implies that we're going to be another 30 years before we do this again, which means everybody who runs a trade association or is a small businessman or whatever goes, I'll be dead or retired by the time we revisit this. Therefore, I had better get my the thing that matters most to me into this bill or sink it because if, if I don't get this done now, I'll never see an opportunity to do it. If there's one plane out of Casablanca, there are very sharp elbows of all the people who want to get in the plane. If there's a bus every 20 minutes, you let the little old lady in the wheelchair go because you can come back. The good news is that I've had a direct conversation with uh, both Paul Ryan uh, and uh, Chairman Brady as well as Vice President Pence and said, just this point, could we work on not calling this the once in a lifetime thing in the sense of not again for 30 years? And they said, no, no, as long as there's a Republican House and Senate president, we'll get a tax cut every year. We did under Bush. Some of them were big, some of them were small. But when we had a Republican House Senate president, we had a tax cut every one of those years, and that will be the case now. I think it's important for all of us to make that clear to the American people, that this is going to be a significant tax cut, significant tax reform, but there are a lot of things that are going to be left off the table. I don't. While we're going to go to a territorial tax system for businesses, we are not going to a territorial tax system for people. We have five and a half million Americans who live, live and work overseas. We have 10 million Americans who live overseas, five and a half million who work and vote or could vote because they're the right age. I do th wish also that when we talked about Americans with jobs, we don't talk about bringing in, oh, we've got to bring these American jobs back here. Or we want to have uh, jobs in America. We want jobs for Americans. That includes five million plus people who happen to be working in Hong Kong or Britain or, or some other country. And right now we tax them. We'd let the Europeans tax them and then we tax them again, um, just as we do with companies. Everybody's agreed it's a very stupid, destructive thing to do to American companies. It's also a stupid, destructive thing to do to people. Uh, and so companies overseas are hiring somebody from other countries rather than Americans because our tax system makes hiring Americans more expensive. Why is this going to pass? Didn't we just have a big blow up the other day and the, the president and two senators were throwing spitballs at each other and, and doesn't that endanger this project? Well, two thoughts. Um, Flake and Corker have, if not 100% votes with the rest of the modern Republican Party and Trump, close to 100%. They're both grown-ups. They're, they're committed to tax reform. They've each played a role in this bill in terms of shaping it and so on. Uh, that, I do not believe that that uh, brouhaha, the shiny thing that uh, attracts folks on... Uh, 
cable television uh, suggests anything about how people will vote on tax reform. Uh, we've seen it come through the House. In, in the Senate vote was everybody except Rand Paul, and he had a particular point he was trying to make, and he made it, and the next day he tweeted, I'm all in for tax reform. So that vote of his was not a vote endangering tax reform. It was a vote because he wanted something on spending. He wants some focus on an issue. I think he got some of what he wanted, but not all. Uh, but it was not an effort to hold tax reform hostage or to endanger tax reform. So we have 52 votes. You can still have two people wander off on, on, uh, on voting day, uh, but we have a solid Republican agreement. We saw the, the, the people who voted today were the, kind of, were the folks who like to throw up votes so they can get on talk radio and tell everybody that this didn't solve all the world's problems last Tuesday, so I had to vote no and let everybody know in case you weren't aware of that. Um, th this is not a part of the caucus that endangers uh, uh, repeal, uh, reform of uh, health care. Why are we here with the Republicans? Um, I would argue that the issue that divides the two parties more than any other is the tax issue. There isn't a Republican in the House and the Senate who won't cut your taxes. There isn't a Democrat in the House or the Senate who won't raise your taxes. It is the issue that you have the least amount of crossover. There are a few Democrats who won't steal your guns. There are a few Democrats who are social conservatives. There are no Democrats who will not raise your taxes every time they have a shot at it. And there are no Republicans against cutting people's taxes as we move forward. Of all the things that have divided the two parties out, we used to be the North and South Party, if somebody was uh, a Republican, you knew he was born north of the Mason-Dixon line, but that's all you knew about him 50, 60 years ago, okay? Uh, today, somebody tells you, and then the little old lady in Mississippi who agreed with Ronald Reagan on everything and voted for George McGovern because Sherman had been mean to Atlanta recently. Um, those people have moved on, passed away, or switched parties. So we've, we have two rational parties on questions of size of, of government. Um, the other thing that helped, we helped a little bit with the Taxpayer Protection Pledge, where we ask all the candidates, almost all the Republicans, about 90-plus percent of the Republicans in the House and Senate, have taken and kept the pledge. The only pledge breakers were in 1990. Remember Bush, George Herbert Walker Bush, got some people to agree with him to raise taxes in 90 so we could stop the Reagan uh, period of uninterrupted growth uh, and elect a Democrat, uh, which worked, uh, if that's what he was trying to do. Uh, he reminds us with his tax increase that no one's life is a complete waste. Some people serve as bad examples. Uh, don't do that. It didn't work. Big mistake. And the modern Republican Party watched a president who was actually otherwise very successful, managed the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, kicked Iraq out of Kuwait without getting stuck occupying the place for 20 years. He did pretty well. One problem, tax increase. But he, um, and he lost the presidency as a result. Since then, we've had pretty close to ivory soap percentages of Republicans committing not that they'll never raise taxes and keeping that commitment. Everybody who voted wrong in 90 is dead or retired. There are none of those people in the House or the Senate anymore. Um, so this is progress. It's moving in the right direction. You have a unified Republican Party. There'll be lots of discussion between now and then. But the reason why things will be able to be settled is not only the unity on the, on the pledge. And Republicans understand that they have branded their party as the party that will not raise your taxes and that supports tax cuts. Uh, Coca-Cola spends a great deal of time working on its brand and quality control so you can go to the store, buy a Coke, take it home. You don't have to read the, 
the, the, the ingredients. You don't have to ask your friends what it tastes like. You don't have to ask the proprietor, could I take a, a taste and see what this is before I take it home? You know it's inside it. You get it home. But if you got your bottle of Coke home and you look down and when you were two-thirds through the bottle of Coke, you noticed that there was a rat head in the remaining third, you would not say to yourself, you know, I'm, I'm thinking I won't finish the rest of this bottle right now. You would, in fact, wonder whether you'd buy Coke in the future, and you'd go on, take a selfie with this, and Coca-Cola would have a big problem because it would damage the brand for all Coke bottles, not just the one that was a problem. And Republican elected officials who vote for tax increases are rat heads in a Coke bottle. Um, <laughs> They damage the brand for everyone, so these self-police, they confuse small children about the nature of the world. You know, Mom, you said, and I, right there I see. Um, so this, moving the two parties in two separate direction has made it difficult to cut taxes when the Democrats are in charge, but much easier to, do, to cut taxes when the Republican Party is in charge. And let me end with the following thought. We're going to have a tax cut every year that the Republicans have the House, Senate, and the presidency. This means anything that doesn't get into this package is not lost for 30 years. It makes it easier to vote for an incomplete bill that doesn't cut rates enough, that doesn't do enough for Americans or businesses that live overseas, that doesn't do enough to reduce the cost on, on savings and investment. Um, and, and you make a list of the things that aren't in this bill, that's the list of our next targets. That is not the list of disappointments. That is the list of things we will do next year or the year after. And I would suggest to those trade associations and companies and industries that say, well, I, don't, I didn't get enough out of this. If you help get this across the finish line, you could be at the beginning of the line when we make the next tax bill next year and the year after that. If, however, you whine and kick people in the shins, you are at the end of the line when we decide to solve other people's problems going along. I believe that will make it easier, both for congressmen, senators, and interested parties to be supportive of a bill that does many, many good things, but not everything, okay? I mean, the IRS is still there at the end of this process. So with that, it's tremendous step forward. It's tremendous progress. Politically, it will pass because the brouhaha that, we, that the press likes to focus on does not endanger uh, general votes. I mean, after all that stuff where people were pushing and throwing spitballs at each other, the other day the Senate went out and voted to pass the Congressional Review Act to go after the trial lawyers, to defund the trial lawyers, which the, the trial lawyers say is, you know, they were anti-consumer. So you had a united Republican Party sitting around and voting, Flake, McCain, Corker, everybody, um, just after this sort of dust-up. And the press covered the dust-up and missed the dramatic CRA uh, that overrode the Dodd-Frank uh, regulation that had just had, had been in, and we now took it out. So just an example, within hours of the dust-up, it affected nobody's vote. We lost two people because the trial lawyers have a lease on them. Um, not ownership, perhaps, but, but you were going to lose those anyway, whether, whether they were best friends with the president or not because of their relationship with the trial lawyers. So cheerful news, going to pass. I think, I think some people will make a case as to all the cool things it'll do for the economy, uh, but I think that lower marginal tax rates on capital and labor is self-evidently good for the country. Thanks.
Thanks very much. Um, we're off to a good start. Uh, Grover had a lot of uh, uh, great insights, um, and um, I'd like to uh, associate myself with, uh, with his optimism. Um, if not, if uh, I can't replicate his passion, um, I am optimistic uh, that we're going to have a tax bill. I, I think that I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that the folks in the room here are optimistic. That's why they're they're here. It's not just for the free food. Um, they're here because I hope you're here because you believe that there will be a tax bill um, and uh, and you want to know um, more about it and what it might look like or what it should try to look like. I want to try to touch on um, uh, a few issues, uh, sort of generally about what tax reform is or, or can be or should be, and then I'll try to touch on some of the economics, and particularly the economics around um, corporate tax cuts and corporate tax reform. So first, uh, an issue that's, that the past few speakers have already addressed, this question of what tax cuts versus tax reform, which is which, um, why are we calling this reform, why did we call the other bills uh, during the Bush era tax cuts, um, you know, are we for one, are we for the other, what's going to happen? So the first key, um, and this is, I think, consistent with what Grover was saying, is it's not a binary choice, right? And so if you ask academics, um, not politicians, but academics who study tax policy, what is tax reform, generally the answer is, it is moving the, from the tax code we have to one where we get the same amount of revenue in a better way, right? So instead of doing it in a way that hurts, hurts the economy, let's try to figure out how to collect the revenues that we need in a way that, that doesn't hurt or that hurts less. And, and that often involves, uh, first and foremost, lower tax rates. Um, and so, um, and I think that if you think about how to message some of these issues, um, we he we've heard over the last year or so as this debate has really heated up, um, folks talking about that concept. And, and, uh, and oftentimes the way that's messaged is people say, um, I'm for tax reform, I want to cut taxes, I want to cut tax rates, and I want to close loopholes. And I think if you say it that way, it, 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 sounds, it sounds pretty good, I think, because uh, people aren't really in favor of, of tax loopholes. There's another way to say the same thing, um, which is maybe a little bit wonkier, which is I want to cut taxes, I want to cut tax rates, and I want to broaden the tax base. And I think if you say that to a, to an, a broad audience uh, of constituents, that actually might also go over okay. And the reason I think it'll go over okay is because nobody knows what broadening the tax base means. So they understand what tax cuts and lower rates are, and then there's this other thing that kind of doesn't really offend them, um, so they're still sort of relatively excited. But I'll tell you, if you tell people that you want to cut taxes, you want to lower tax rates, and you want to raise taxes also at the same time, well, that doesn't go over well at all, right? Um, and that's the winners and losers problem um, that, we t that was mentioned in the introduction, um, and that's some of the challenges uh, the politicians face. Um, so cut, cutting tax rates and also um, creating lots of winners um, is, is tough politics, and I think that there's plenty of evidence of that. Um, uh, and so, but it's, not, but it's not a binary choice, and we saw that play out in the budget resolution, and we've seen that play out in the, um, in the, the sort of the core outline, um, the big six plan that Republican leaders have introduced. They are talking about cutting taxes, they're talking about cutting tax rates, and they are talking about some base broadeners, like doing some things to repeal some deductions, to repeal some credits. Um, and there's a good reason for that. And I I'll just want to speak for a, for a moment in defense of some of these base broadeners, some of these uh, repeal of, the, of these special provisions in the code, is because those provisions are distortionary. They're bad economics. They make people make choices that they wouldn't otherwise make. And I don't mean to say that there isn't one that's not defensible. But I mean that if we use the tax code as a tool where lawmakers are deciding how to, over and over and over again, how to push or pull taxpayers into making different decisions, then we end up with a system that is full of holes 
and subsequently very high tax rates. And those tax rates are bad, and those distortions are oftentimes um, bad as well. And so the tax reform is about going back to the broader base, taxing, um, you know, Grover says tax everything once. I, t I completely agree. That means everything. Tax it just once, but tax everything once. Um, and let's, let's move in that direction. And what we saw in the budget resolution um, is an effort um, to reduce taxes, reduce taxes over the next decade by a trillion and a half dollars. Um, but what we know from the, from the talking points or from the proposals as they've been described so far is it also talks about having a system that's a little bit simpler um, with, a, with a bit of a broader base. And we get, we get simpler by doing things like doubling the standard deduction, um, uh, um, by repealing the state and local tax deduction, we get some fairness, um, and then we can get more tax cuts as we have those offsets. Um, when you add it together, it looks like it's going to be a net tax reduction that's going to afford uh, more tax cuts overall. Um, I want to focus in um, on, on one aspect of the, of the tax reform, which is what's happening on the business side. Now, um, folks who, who you know, play in this space know that most of the revenues that are raised from the tax code come from individuals. They come, you know, payroll tax obviously is a huge tax, but the income, the ordinary income tax, is where we get most of our revenues. It's from taxing uh, wages, from taxing workers, from taxing households. But about 10% of the revenues come from corporations. And um, which taxes to cut first and which taxes, you know, which tax cuts yield the most benefit, we, we don't know that by looking at where we get the revenue, we, look at, we, know at, we know that by looking at sort of the economics underlying um, the consequences. And that's easy to understand because, as someone said, in the, I think in the Wall Street Journal yesterday, you know, if we had a million-dollar tax on, on airline flights, we would have no airline flights, um, but that doesn't mean the tax isn't distortionary. And so on the corporate side, um, this is the tax that I think is the most distortionary. Um, and I think that probably everyone in this room who follows tax policy at all knows two things about the corporate tax code. And I'm going to repeat them one more time, and everyone knows what they are before I say them. We have the highest tax rate in the industrialized world, right? We've, all, we've had it. Everyone else has cut their rate. Ours is 35% plus the state tax. We have the highest rate in the world. And as a consequence, our business tax system, our corporate tax system, is not competitive with our competitors. Right? Everyone's heard that so many times. For a decade, there's been a campaign, at least a decade, a campaign to cut the corporate tax rate. And those are the two arguments. First, ours is the worst, and second, it's hurting our competitiveness. But the problem is, is so what? What does that mean? Right? No one's made the case for why I, as a worker, should care so much that the CEO of Ford has to sit on top of a company that, where he's the CEO of a company and paying a tax system that's less competitive than the CEO of BMW. What, what does it matter to me, right? And so we've heard so much about this rhetoric about how our code is the worst, but we don't pay that tax, right? We don't pay the corporate tax, we pay the individual income tax. We're the voters. And so what we haven't heard in the last decade is a strong argument about why I should care about those facts. Those facts are true, but no one has done a very good job convincing us why that matters. Until a couple of weeks ago, quite frankly. A couple of weeks ago, the argument started to shift, and, and it became an argument into itself. It became a debate and became, uh, I won't say a scandal, but there's, in the economics community, there's a sort of big argument going on right now about why we should care. And the issue is this. We know that corporations don't you know, they collect the tax, but there's a consequence to someone else in the economy as a result of that tax. And broadly speaking, it could be the guys that own the business, or it could be the guys that work in the business. 
And the question is, is who's the loser when we have the worst corporate tax rate? And I'll tell you, for a long time, economists, there was sort of a consensus. There was sort of an agreement across the political spectrum. Um, this goes back, you know, decades ago. But decades ago, there was sort of a consensus among liberal and conservative economists that there was the shareholders, that the, the owners of the business were the ones who sort of bore the brunt of the corporate income tax. And then some people started to revisit that question and look again at the evidence and recognize that the economy today is different than the economy of 20, 30, or 50 years ago, and that the, this incidence, this burden, may be different as well. And the reason why there was a consensus, and quite frankly, it might have been true in the past. The reason that where that consensus came from was a view that, of the economy that was relatively simple. And the view of that economy of the old, in the old world was that the economy is generally closed, meaning not open to trade, and that the amount of capital in the economy is relatively fixed. And so if you're taxing capital, then if you own it, you know, you bear the brunt of that tax. But other than that, it doesn't really matter because it's just kind of a fixed thing. Well, that's actually not how the economy works today. Today, the economy is much more open than it was 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. And there isn't a limited supply of capital in the United States. There's kind of an infinite amount of capital. Now, not literally an infinite amount of capital, but we do know that when business opportunities are good in one country, whether it be Ireland or Malaysia or the Netherlands or France or Germany or wherever, or Mexico or Canada, people take their money and they go to that place, right? They build factories there. They hire workers there. And that's not the United States today. And so the principle behind corporate tax reform, why it's important, is because it will, it will bring activity here. And to, is the first thing. And the second thing is it'll bring reported profits here as well. And we are in a very dynamic global economy today. We haven't closed off our economy yet to the rest of the world, although sometimes we threaten, some of us have threatened to. Um, we have a relatively open economy. And, we, and when the corporate tax rates change dramatically, we will see businesses respond dramatically. We will see profits shifting back into the United States, and we will see an increase in real investment in the United States. The consequence of that, that change in, uh, in real investment in the United States will have consequences for the workers, will have consequences for the people who work in those factories, who work at those businesses. Their wages will benefit, right? And it is not a complicated economic model to suggest that. It's a relatively simple model. It's just one that is an open economy model, and we can get those effects. And so the Council of Economic Advisors estimated that effect could be as much as $4,000 per household. Other people have estimates. I don't want to sort of endorse any one of these numbers. The Tax Foundation was out today saying that the, the number might be $1,800. Others have other estimates. Larry Kotlikoff had one in the Wall Street Journal uh, a few weeks ago. And I, to be honest, it's hard to know. It's hard to know because we haven't done this in a long time. But this is an experiment um, worth trying. Because we know theoretically, and we know from the experiences of other countries, that when other countries have done this, um, and when we understand that the economy is relatively open, we understand that wages are going to go up. Exactly how much? We're going to find out after we do it, right? But we know directionally that the economy is going to be better off. And that doesn't mean that the shareholders are going to be the only ones who are better off. It means it's the workers who are going to be the, better, the ones who are better off. Um, there's a lot of chatter. There's a last point I'll make, and then I'll pass the mic. There's been a lot of chatter 
not only about the wage question, which I think is fantastic to be having this debate, and let's argue about whether it's $1,800 or $4,000 or some other number, but we know that it's a positive number. There's also been a lot of chatter about the economic growth overall, the GDP effects. Um, and here, too, I think that we should be confident that if we can bring the rates down, um, and we have to be cognizant in, these, in, these, in this context of the, the net budget impact, whether it's the net revenue impact or the net deficit impact, um, but we can have a, a, a tax reform that is net positive for the overall economy. What that means is that we will, with a better system, one different from the system we have today, the size of the U.S. economy will be larger than it otherwise would be. It will take time from the day of enactment to the day that that effect is, in, is fully realized. And during that period of time, the economy will grow faster, and then it will reach this new higher level that it otherwise wouldn't reach, and we will all be better off as a result of that. Um, sometimes people claim that we might get 10% growth or something like that, and I think that that would be misleading. But I absolutely believe that we can see faster economic growth in the near term and the medium term, and, we, and good tax reform that's fiscally responsible and brings down these marginal rates, particularly this most important reform, the business reforms, that bring a corporate rate that makes us lower than many of our competitors, not on par, but lower than our our, many of our competitors, will bring in a lot of revenue. Um, and in fact, that dynamic score of that corporate uh, change, I think, is something that we should be thinking a lot about. There's a good chance that we will have so much onshoring of corporate profits that we'll be losing far less revenue um, than would otherwise be suggested by the, the sort of conventional models from CBO and joint tax. So um, I share the optimism, um, you know, in terms of timing. I think it will take a little, bit, a little bit of time. I don't think this is something that's going to wrap up before Christmas, but I think that doesn't really matter from an economic perspective. We're, I think lawmakers are going to get this done early next year, and I think there are going to be benefits as a result of it. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Alex and, uh, and Grover, and thank you all for being here. Uh, I'm going to talk uh, about individual tax changes. Alex mainly talks about the, talked about the business end of it. Uh, the main thrust of the Republican plan on the individual side is to lower marginal tax rates. Why do we want lower marginal tax rates? Well, lower rates uh, encourage people to do productive things like working and saving, and it discourages them from doing unproductive things like tax avoidance uh, and evasion. Uh, Cutting the top tax rates is particularly important. Uh, Ronald Reagan slashed the top individual tax rate back in 81 from 70 to 50 percent, and then the rate dropped further in 1986 to just 28 percent. The 1986 Tax Reform Act was kind of remarkable. Uh, you go back and look at the vote count. There was large bipartisan majorities in both House and Senate back in 1986 to drop the top personal rate to just 28 percent. It's kind of remarkable. Today, the top rate is at 40 percent. Uh, Republicans are talking about dropping it to 35 percent, which would be progress. So why is cutting top rates so important? Uh, let me get a little bit wonky uh, with you. Uh, economic distortions rise rapidly as marginal tax rates rise. <clears throat> Economist Greg Mankiw said, quote, it is a standard proposition in economics that the deadweight loss of a tax rises with the square of the tax rate. If we double a tax, the deadweight loss increases fourfold. A 40% tax rate is four times more damaging than a 20% tax rate. 
So it's basic economic theory that the damage from high tax rates uh, is, is particularly uh, troubling for the economy. Uh, also, high earners uh, tend to be very dynamic uh, with, their, uh, with their earning and investing behavior. They have more flexibility than other taxpayers. You get the biggest bang for the buck in tax cuts uh, when there are strong behavioral responses. And studies find that high earners have the strongest behavior responses to tax changes. Uh, it's also true, uh, and this is more of uh, an opinion, uh, that people at the top end are highly productive. Uh, it's true that in the top ends of the, the tax uh, distribution, you get uh, a lot of Hollywood people and people like Kim Kardashian and people like that. However, the bulk of people at the top end, they're entrepreneurs, they're venture capitalists, they're doctors, they're brain surgeons, they're corporate executives. These folks are very important to the economy. Uh, it would do more for economic growth to cut their taxes than to cut the taxes of a wage earner like me. For these reasons, countries around the world have slashed uh, personal uh, income tax rates in the last few decades. Uh, Alex talked about uh, how uh, corporate tax rates have fallen. It's also true for individual rates. Back in the mid-1980s, the average top rate in the OECD countries for individuals was 64%. Uh, at the time, we were at around 55%. Uh, then we slashed rates in 1986. Uh, and we remained below the OECD average for uh, just about three decades, up until 2013. In 2013, the Bush tax cuts for high earners expired. Uh, and since then, the United States has had a higher top personal rate than the average for OECD countries. Uh, with state taxes, we're at around 46% now. Uh, for individuals, and the average in the OECD is 43%. The United States is actually a punishing uh, country for high uh, earners. Uh, an OECD country a number of years ago found that the United States has the most progressive tax system amongst all their member countries. Uh, I don't think that's a good thing. Uh, the top 10% in the United States pay 45% of all income and social security taxes. So 45%, the average in the OECD is just 32%. So for a country that's supposed to be a haven for entrepreneurship and opportunity, uh, I think our punishing taxation at the high end is really bad economics. So let me talk uh, a few minutes about the GOP framework. Uh, Alex touched on the business provisions. Uh, for individuals, the, the main thrust is to uh, drop our current seven tax brackets down to three lower tax brackets. Uh, that's uh, good stuff. Uh, the Republicans would also double the standard deduction and increase the child tax credit. Uh, those provisions won't do anything for growth because they don't change uh, an individual worker's uh, sort of marginal behavior to increase their work effort. Uh, it is true, though, that doubling the standard deduction would be a big simplification. Uh, I'm disappointed that capital gains tax cuts are not included in the Republican framework. Uh, I think capital gains tax cuts uh, would play a unique role uh, in entrepreneurship and investment in startup companies. Uh, nearly all OECD countries have substantially lower capital gains tax rates. Uh, our rate with uh, state taxes is around 28%. The average in the OECD uh, on capital gains, remarkably, is around 16%. So uh, I hope, like Grover uh, says, that Republicans will come back in future years and tackle the capital gains tax problem. Let me uh, talk for a few minutes about uh, distribution or who gets the tax cuts. Uh, when the Republicans released their framework a few weeks ago, um, you know, there was lots of uh, discussion uh, in the media and by lots of pundits that these are tax cuts for the rich. Uh, the Urban Institute's Tax Policy Center uh, analyzed the Republican plan, uh, and uh, their results seem to show that it favored high earners. 
uh, tax policy center. They do have top-notch uh, analysts over there. Uh, they're skilled economists, but I do think they slant the results uh, in a liberal direction, and I'll give you an example of that. Uh, their results for the Republican plan show that middle earners would get an average tax cut of $660. High earners would get a much bigger tax cut of $8,400. Uh, but the Tax Policy Center did not show how much those two groups were currently paying in tax. Uh, so I looked at those numbers and I found uh, that the $8,400 tax cut for a high earners uh, would be a 12% cut, but the $660 cut for middle earners would be a much bigger 20% cut. Uh, so TPC didn't show this in their results, but their underlying analysis shows that the middle uh, earners would get bigger, uh, bigger percentage tax cuts. Uh, another problem with the TPC uh, uh, results is that, you know, they're modeling. They use uh, static models, uh, and that, you know, static and dynamic scoring has got a lot of discussion in recent years because it affects the overall sort of revenue estimates for, for tax bills. But the, the dynamic scoring versus static scoring is also very important to distribution tables. The TPC distribution tables, I think, were biased uh, in a way that showed that high earners uh, would do better than they actually would because they were static uh, tables. Uh, another issue is the allocation of the corporate tax burden. Alex touched on this. Uh, the Tax Policy Center assumes that most of the corporate tax burden uh, falls on shareholders, which again would show that the Republican plan uh, mainly benefits high earners. But the reality is in the long run, most, most conservative economists think uh, that the corporate tax burden lands on workers. So if you cut corporate tax rates in the long run, it's going to be workers who are the main uh, beneficiaries of that. So my point here is just to be very cautious uh, about these studies and uh, uh, what news stories are saying about who benefits from tax cuts. Those questions are actually really complicated. So to conclude, uh, having uh, just uh, discussed distribution tables, uh, I don't think Republicans should focus on distribution. I think they ought to leave those issues of class warfare to the other party. I think Republicans ought to focus on how tax reform will create broad-based prosperity that benefits everyone. Uh, liberals have suggested we don't need a tax cut now because the economy uh, is doing uh, pretty well right now. But the purpose of tax reforms is long-term economic uh, growth. Uh, in the short run, uh, economist Larry Lindsay loaded, noted in the Wall Street Journal the other day, quote, when a supply-side tax bill like this is passed at a time of full employment, labor's share of the economic pie expands rapidly, unquote. Because labor markets are fairly tight right now, Lindsay expects substantial real wage growth if Congress passes a supply-side tax cut. So to sum up, Supply-side or pro-growth tax reform uh, would generate more business investment, more job opportunities, uh, and higher wages in the long run. Uh, in my view, the Republican tax plan so far um, would advance those goals and I think in the long run benefit every American. The challenge now, I think, going ahead is uh, that the Republicans retain the most pro-growth or supply-side elements of their plan and that they don't get watered down as this uh, tax bill moves through Congress. So again, thanks for being here. I'm going to uh, give the podium to Ryan, who's going to take uh, your questions. Thank you.